something about that flute music makes me want to take a nap. <laughs> rest and just yeah, go to sleep. So, wake up! <laughs> We're going to be looking at Matthew. Matthew, chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25, and we're going to be looking at the first Christmas gift. December 25th is by far the most popular holiday today, but not because of Jesus' birth. It's the biggest holiday of the year because that's when all the retailers make their money. And so they just are all about pushing Christmas, which now is not really Christmas, it's Happy Holiday. And uh, if you've lived for a while, you can see how they're trying to get Jesus more and more out of Christmas and different stores are telling their employees, don't say Christmas, say holidays. And uh, they're just trying to, you know, keep all the celebration, but change it from the worship of Christ to the lining of their pockets. And some even say that Jesus wasn't even born um, in December that um, what happened was, is when Constantine um, took over uh, and conquered the Rome and set up his kingdom, that the worship of the sun happened on December 25th. And he didn't want uh, Christians celebrating this uh you know, worship of the Sunday it was, a, it was when the winter solstice, that's the shortest day of the year, which usually happens around December 21st or 22nd. And he didn't want Christians celebrating that day. And so he decided that that would be Jesus's birthday. But we don't even know when Jesus was born. And so then it makes you wonder, are we like celebrating this thing? And, you know, he was born in July. I mean, that would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? Um, when was Jesus born? Well, thankfully, there is a lot of clues in the Bible, and we can look in the Bible and find these clues and actually narrow down the time of Jesus' birth to within a very reasonable time span, though not the exact date. For instance, the Bible says that Caesar Augustus um, was the one who ordered the census that caused Joseph and Mary to come down to Bethlehem. And we know uh, that... Caesar Augustus reigned from 44 BC to 1480, which doesn't really give us much help, but at least kind of gives us a reference. That's probably one of the weakest references. More helpful is that the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 and Luke chapter 1 verse 5 that Jesus was born during the reign or before the death of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, of course, was the uh, the maniac who killed all the children two years and under so that he wouldn't have anybody threatening to take his throne. Now, we know when Herod died because the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that right before Herod's death, there was a lunar eclipse and that right after his death, there was the celebration of the Passover. Well, astronomers have the ability to calculate um, lunar and solar eclipses with precision. And they tell us that this eclipse happened March 13th, 4 BC. Now you might wonder, well, how could it happen 4 BC when Jesus wasn't born yet? And that is because our calendar is wrong. The calendar we use now was instituted in the 6th century. 
And they guessed at when Jesus was born. They wanted to make the calendar reference from the time of Jesus' birth. But again, records were pretty scanty and non-existent. So we know that March 13th, 4 BC was the lunar eclipse that happened right before Herod died and that the Passover was celebrated that year starting April 11th. So that kind of narrows down a pretty neat time span there when Herod must have died. Not only that, we know that Herod died in the 34th year of his reign, which means in order to be in the 34th year of his reign, he had to die after March 29th, which tells us that he must have died between March 29th and April 11th for B.C., That gives us a time span of 13 days. We can say sometime in that period, Herod died. Now, assuming the latest possible date for Herod's death, Jesus had to be born before April 11th, 4 BC. The Bible contains another key reference in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then that is the census that happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. The problem is there are no records of that census. The only records of a census, at least in the Bible, is the one in, um, or, or the only census that is also recorded in the Bible, there's other references to it in history, is the one that Acts records in Acts 5.37, which caused a revolt. And that must have happened around 7 or 6 B.C., So the question is, is when did this census take place? Well, you have to ask yourself, why would the census take place, especially if they're going to do one in 7 or 6 BC? The answer to that question is that Herod, in the last two years of his life, was had very poor health. His sons were trying to take the throne. He killed one. He wrote the other one into his will. And there was all of this intrigue within the household of Herod. That's why he was so paranoid. He was always paranoid, but he was really paranoid towards the end. That's why instead of just saying, what time was the child born to the Magi? And they said, this date, kill everybody in this narrow field. He just said, wipe out a two-year chunk. I mean, he was paranoid. Well... This tells us then that Herod's death was preceded by about two years of conflict within his own household between 6 and 4 BC. This then caused Caesar Augustus to create, to call for a census in Herod's territory, which would be part of the larger census that is recorded in Acts chapter 5. as kind of preliminary. So, we look at this and we say, okay, we're talking about from 6 BC to early up to April 11th, 4 BC. That's about a two-year time, pa- time span. Not only that... Luke chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that when Jesus started his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. Now, it also says he started his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, we know when Tiberius Caesar was reigning, the problem is, is we don't know exactly sure because different Caesars, different kings kind of took their their years of reign based off of the preceding year or the year or the next year. And so there's kind of this three-year time period sometime between 27 and 29 AD would be 
the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And if you take was about 30 years old to mean Jesus was somewhere within two years either side of 30, then it kind of brings you to, when you collect all this information together, that a date of about 5 to 4 BC seems to be the best based on all the evidence. This would place Jesus' birth probably in the winter of 5, if he was born in December, or if he was born after December in the latter part of the winter of 4 BC. So somewhere around November to February. Now some have said, well, he couldn't have been born in the winter of that year because we see the shepherds out on the field watching over their flocks by night. And we know that during the winter, the Jews took their sheep out of the fields, put them into pens and, you know, fed them grass during the winter months. The problem is the Jewish Mishnah says that 30 days before the Passover, the Jews would let their lambs out into the field to graze for the 30 days leading up to the Passover. Now, if we know the Passover is in April 11th, then we know that those shepherds could have been out there because of the 30 days leading up to the Passover. Not only that, the Mishnah also says that in and around Jerusalem, they let them graze all year. So December 25th works as a possibility. (laughs) So, all that to say is we can be relatively certain based off of all the biblical data and the two accounts of two early church fathers, that December 25th is a very likely date, though not a certain date, but most likely Jesus was born in the winter of 5 and 4 BC. So there you have it. Let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You can follow along as I read. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So what we're going to do here in this section, there's so many, there's so much stuff here. I was just talking to Ed Wildy how miserable it is to teach a big chunk of scripture, especially one as neat as this. What we're going to do is we're going to break this up into three people, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And we're going to see what the text tells us about those three people. And in the process, get the overview of what happened the significance of what happened, and our response to what happened. So first, we want to look at Mary, specifically her conception. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows when his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, just stop there. 
What's interesting, and what is also confusing, is that when you read Luke's account, there are some things in Luke's account which seem to indicate that they were engaged, which is fine. So they were engaged. They are not only engaged when Mary became pregnant, but they were engaged, Luke says, when they were in Bethlehem right before Jesus was born. Here, we learn that they are betrothed, which is kind of another way of talking about Jewish engagement. Yet the problem is, is in verse 19, we're told that Joseph was intending to send Mary away. And verse 19 says, and Joseph, her husband, was intending to send her away. So the question is, were they married or not? What was, was Joseph her husband or not? Were they just engaged or were they married? How can you divorce somebody you're not married to? And some people said, well, obviously there's a mistake here. Yeah, the mistake is in the brain of the person who thinks there's a mistake. <laughs> because what you really need to understand is Jewish customs and then it all makes perfectly good sense. In, to the Jews, there was two stages. If you go back in the Old Testament and you look up betrothed or engaged, um, you will find out that in the Jewish custom, you would be betrothed to somebody. It was a legally binding contract where you were arranged to be married to a certain person and in order to break that, you had to get a divorce. So you were considered husband and wife from the time of what we would call engagement. And that could not be broken except by a legally binding divorce. You would have to get divorced. So Matthew, writing to Jews, says they were betrothed, refers to Joseph as Mary's husband, and then says they want, he was going to Send her away, which is just a euphemism for divorce her. Luke, writing to Gentiles who don't really understand all those things, just says they were engaged. That is how we understand it. That is, both are true. They were engaged, they weren't betrothed, and they were married. All three, that would be three. Now, if you look at the text... We also notice in the middle of verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And so much is left out here. I mean, Matthew, in a very economy of words, tells us what happens. She was found to be with the child. Okay, how did that happen? Did she get morning sickness right away? And her mother noticed, Mary, why are you throwing up and eating? What's going on here? Did her mother suspect that or did she tell her mother right away after she was visited by the angel or did Mary keep it to herself? And then, you know, the text says she did go see Elizabeth for three months and then returned. Yet when she returned, she'd only be three months pregnant. She'd hardly be showing and they wore pretty loose clothing. It may have been not until quite a bit later that she was found to be pregnant, but it just says she was found here in the text. It doesn't give us all the details of how she was found out to be pregnant. And as the baby grew in Mary's womb, you have to ask yourself, what went through Mary's mind after she had become pregnant? You know, if you put yourself in her shoes, an angel visits you. 
tells you you're going to give birth as a virgin, all of a sudden you're pregnant. That would be, that would be something, wouldn't it? That would be quite the experience. And all these questions we might have, um, Mark Lowry's song, Mary Did You Know, captures them well. He asks a bunch of questions. Let me just read the lyrics. Mary, did you know that your baby would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make us new? The child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know, see, there's the baby right now, um, that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Oh, Mary, did you know? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know... That your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb. The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Mary, did you know? And the whole song asks all these questions. And if he would have read his Bible, he wouldn't have had to ask the questions because he'd know that almost all of these, the scriptures answer. Now, think about this. What did Mary know? Well, Let's just say for a second that you were Mary. You're a teenager, 14, 18. An angel appears to you and gives you a message. Do you think he would remember that? You know, we tend to remember those traumatizing, engaging, adrenaline pumping situations with some pretty good detail, don't we? And so if the angel gave you some information, I think you'd remember And then every time you heard any information now that you're pregnant with this child. Anytime you heard any information about your child from other people. Do you think you would remember that? I think so. I think you would be very interested in this miraculous conception that has happened to you. And you would take very careful note. And you know how I know that? Because it's here in the Bible. Where do you think Matthew got the information? Where do you think Luke got the information? They went and talked to Mary. Or talked to somebody that Mary talked to. That's how they did. But what does the Bible tell us? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 and 23, right? And within our text, there's four things. She knew that she would bear a son as a virgin... That's pretty significant. Secondly, she knew to call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. Third, she knew that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Now that's a big one. Fourth, she knew that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then from Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, and verse 35, and verse 43, and verse 69 and 76, there's 10 more things she knew. She knew her son would be great. Six, 
She knew her son would be called the son of the most high. Seven, she knew the Lord would give him the throne of his father, David, which means he would be the Messiah king. Eight, she knew that he would reign over the house of Jacob, which means he would have all the 12 tribes under him and he would have sovereign dominion over them. Nine, she knew his kingdom would have no end, which was a reference also to the prophecy that Nathan made to David, which is recorded in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, that said that David's descendant, his son, would sit on the throne and rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, which make him not only a king, not only the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, but immortal. Ten, she knew that she would be pregnant as a virgin because of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. Eleven, she knew her child would be a holy child. Twelve, she knew her child would be called the Son of God. Thirteen, she knew Elizabeth from Elizabeth that her child in her womb was Elizabeth's Lord. And fourteen, she knew that her child would be the horn of salvation from the house of David, which... The word horn means a symbolism of power because animal has their power and their horns. You see this in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, in the visions where the nations are described as having horns. Horns contain the power. In other words, he would be the power of salvation from the line of David. That's what Mary knew. Now, just put yourself into Mary's shoes for a minute. And you know that about your baby. That'd be pretty significant. That you have God incarnate within you. The son of God. The son of the most high. The Messiah. The king. You would probably feel like you have a bomb in you. A grenade with a pin pulled. You know, you've got God almighty within. And, you know, I don't know. There's the one text in Luke, I think it's 2.19, where it says she pondered all these things in her heart after Jesus was born. Well, I'm sure she was doing a lot of pondering at this point, too. Wondering, you know, how do you raise God incarnate? Um, how do you raise the Son of God? I mean, he's going to be coming out talking and walking. And, you know, what do you do? Very, very interesting and fun to think about. And in heaven we'll be able to ask Mary all the questions about that. Second person we come to in the text is Joseph. If you look at verse 19, it says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly or divorce her. And it's hard to say what Joseph knew at this point. You know, there's basically two possibilities. He either didn't know anything except that she was pregnant and so was going to divorce her or he knew that she was pregnant, knew why she said she was pregnant and didn't believe her and was going to divorce her. You know, maybe Mary had told her parents and her parents then went and accused Joseph. I mean, I don't know about you, but if my daughter was engaged to somebody and then became pregnant, I know who I don't go after. And surely that's most likely how Joseph found out. You know, Mary says, Mom, Dad, I have something to tell you. Yes, what is it, dear? I'm pregnant. Mm. You know, and after they get up from the floor, and there's some Jewish temper, some anger there, and rightly so, 
Deuteronomy 22 verses 23 and 24 says, If a girl who is a virgin and is engaged or betrothed to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Even though she's just betrothed. Wife. Thus you shall purge evil from among you. Mary's pregnancy would have been this huge, devastating blow to her parents. It would have disgraced her whole family. It would have put her life in danger because if they went over, I'm sure he would have went over and said, Joseph, what did you do? And he would have denied it and said, I didn't do anything. Now, Joseph had every right to publicly disgrace Mary. That means Mary is brought out in the community and he says before everybody, because they all know that they're engaged and, you know, he's suspect number one, that he didn't do it, that she's been unfaithful. Then they get the stones, pummel her to death. That's what's going on here. And you can imagine how Mary felt at this time thinking, okay, (laughs) you know, I didn't do anything wrong. And now my life's in danger. Yet our text says, if you look there, that Joseph being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He decided, probably out of love for Mary, you know what? She's already disgraced enough. She's already disgraced her family enough. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just dissolve the betrothal, divorce her, and that'll be the end of it. But let's say you're a man engaged to a woman that you love, and you find out she's pregnant, and you know it's not your baby. I mean, what happens there? It just, it just you know, rip your heart to pieces, wouldn't it? You're thinking, why? Why did you do this? And you can imagine that even if he had some time to to talk with Mary and Mary said, Joseph, it's okay. God's the father of my baby. (laughs) I'm still a virgin. You see, it was the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High that has overshadowed me. And I'm going to give birth to the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the Messiah and Savior of Israel. And Joseph would have said what? You need to go to a mental ward. (laughs) Who would ever believe that? I mean, would you believe that? Some of you dads? Your daughter says, yeah, I'm pregnant, dad, but it was God. (laughs) Your daughter needs treatment. No one would believe that. And so all of this kind of just... Let's us understand that something great was happening here, but oftentimes when God does something great through us, it, it, we have to pay the price. And in this instance, both Joseph and Mary for a time had to really go through some very heart wrenching, heart wrenching trial because both of them were being thrust into this situation, which they didn't really anticipate. 
I mean, every woman wanted to give birth to the Messiah, but as a virgin and trying to explain that and trying to believe that. And this brings us to the third and central character of our text, Jesus and his birth. Look at verses 20 through 25. In these verses here, we have six significant things about Jesus. So we're just going to go through these and uh, kind of rapid fire. It'd be fun to just take each one a sermon in a week and be done in February. But we're not going to. The first thing is Joseph was of the line of David. Look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, that is divorcing or sending away Mary, behold, an angel Lord appeared to him a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Now stop there and notice this, that Joseph's father was named Jacob. And it would have been normal and proper. And the common thing to do is to refer to him as Joseph, son of Jacob. But when the angel refers to him, he refers to him as son of David. Now, why is that? Because in Hebrew thinking, anybody in the line of somebody was their son. Jesus was also called the son of David, not because, you know, one of David's wives gave birth to Jesus, but because he was in that line. The question is, how did Jesus get into the line? Through Joseph. Joseph was a son of David. That is, Joseph had the legal lineage connecting him to David. And so when Joseph would take Mary as his wife, he would also be in that process taking Mary's child, which would give Jesus legal rights through Joseph, through adoption, to be in the line of David. That is the significant point. You see, in Genesis 49.10, when Jacob's giving his little prophecies to each of his 12 sons, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, which means that Jesus had to come from Judah. Not only that, in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 14, it says that, that David's son would rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. Not only that, it was prophesied in Isaiah 11 that he had to come from the, the offspring and shoot of Jesse. So when you have all of these prophecies, it means that Jesus, in order to qualify as the Messiah, had to have the legal lineage of somebody who was of Judah, of Jesse, of David. And so by adoption, Jesus got all that through Joseph. Secondly, we look at the text in the middle of verse 20. The angel says to Joseph in a dream, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Mary was the right choice. She was the one who was pregnant. But why is this significant? Well, if you go to Luke, and we're not going to go there, Luke chapter 3 verses 23 through 28, we have the lineage of Jesus. Also, we have it at the beginning of Matthew 1, but they're radically different. Do you know why? Because in Luke, Luke traces Mary's line back and Matthew traces Joseph's line. Matthew emphasizes his legal status. Luke, whose emphasis is the son of man, traces his physical line through Mary on back. So we have both lineages, 
Mary providing the royal bloodline, Joseph providing the legal rights, together giving everything Jesus needed to be the son of David who will rule over the house of David forever and ever. Third, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 20. The angel also says to Joseph, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Why? I mean, if Joseph is of the line of David and has all the legal rights, if Mary has the bloodline, I mean, they're both from the line of David, then why not just have Joseph and Mary get together, get married, and have a kid like people have kids today instead of the virgin birth thing? And, you know, have it be Jesus. Why the Holy Spirit? Well, this is the reason. Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul tells us that it is through Adam that death, sin, and the curse spread to all men. Everyone is a sinner Because they are born sinners because they are of the descendants of Adam who, when he sinned, was cursed. And so were all of his descendants. Even though Eve was the first person to sin and she apparently seemed to be just as guilty as Adam. Yet we are all sinners, not in Eve, but Adam, because that's how it is reckoned through the father. Now, if Jesus had an earthly father... He would need to have a perfect father with a sinless nature. And those can't be found. So God was Jesus' father, making him without a sin nature, with no original guilt, with none of the curse of Adam upon him, so that he could be the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so through adoption, Jesus had the legal rights to the throne through Joseph. Through Mary, he had the royal bloodline. And through God, he had a perfect sinless nature. And that qualified him to be everything he needed to be. Fully God and fully man in one person. Two distinct, complete natures fused into one. Into what theologians like to call The big word, the hypostatic union. You know, one of those words they invent to make sure people never remember. The hypostatic union is what it's called. Jesus, being fully God, could not sin, was perfect. Being fully man, he was able to offer himself a perfect, sinless substitute for sinners. That's why that's significant. The fourth thing we see is Jesus was the savior of sinners. Look at verse 21. The angel goes on to say, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This tells us the purpose of Jesus' birth. He was born to die so that he could save sinners. Jesus' name, as mentioned earlier, means Yahweh's salvation. The he, when it says... Here, he will save his people from their sins. That he is emphatic. It means he himself or he alone will save his people from their sins. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, I mean, it's a big deal to be saved, obviously. But every Jew knew that there was only one savior. 
And the Savior was who? The Lord God of Israel. So by saying Jesus is going to save people, it makes Jesus the Lord God of Israel. You know, Christians talk about being saved. I mean, I talk to people, yeah, you know, I'm saved and I got saved in this year or that year or whatever. But you know, we're saved and we even say we're saved from sin. But what exactly does that mean? I mean, we we still sin as Christians, right? So how can you be saved from sin and yet still sin? Well, because there's three ways you're saved from sin. And you have the first two now and the third one awaits. The first thing you're saved from is the eternal consequences of sin, which means this. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you understand you're a sinner, that you deserve to be judged, you believe in Jesus, his life, his death, his person, his burial, his resurrection, and you trust in that and that only to be saved, you are freed from the eternal consequences of sin. You will never go to hell. You can never undo your salvation. Your, your, your salvation is sure and cannot be revoked. The gift and callings of God, it cannot be revoked. So you are safe if you're saved. Secondly, you're saved from sin in that you are freed from the power of sin. Before, Paul says, we were slaves to sin, that we did nothing but sin, sin mastered over us. But then once we come to Christ, sin is no longer master of us, he says in Romans 6, but we are free to walk in newness of life. And so now we have this freedom to obey or disobey. So whenever we disobey, it's not because God blew it, it's because we blew it. We don't have to sin anymore. And so right now, if you are a Christian, you are saved from the eternal consequences of sin and the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. You're saved from the presence of sin when you die or the rapture happens, Christ returns, you go to be with the Lord and then you're no longer, no longer in the presence of sin. You, sin is out of your being. You are freed from its presence. So in that way, we're saved from sin. But you know what's interesting here? It's not really sin that we need to be saved from. It's God. We need to be saved from God himself. And this is kind of interesting to think about, that God would be the one we need saved from, and yet he's the one who's willing to save us from himself. You see, God, we we often think sometimes that God is, is like us, and that he's one way or another way, but he's all he is infinitely all the time, and he cannot set aside pieces of his attributes. Or he would cease to be God. So he is holy. He is perfectly just. And he will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. We have violated God's law and thought and deed. And therefore we deserve to be punished. And nothing can free us from that. Except if God could figure out a way to find a perfect willing substitute. A human being who is without sin. Who would willingly die and suffer his wrath in our place, then he could pour his wrath out on that individual and we, by placing our faith in that individual, receive his righteousness, he, our sins, we go free and the, un, the, the righteous is punished as unrighteous. 
But of course, finding perfect humans is very difficult. And that is why God sent forth his only begotten son to be born of a virgin. Because in doing that, Jesus then could be that perfect sacrifice so that we through faith in him could escape the wrath of God through him. And that is why Christmas is so cool. Romans 5.9, Paul speaking more specifically says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God the Son dies for us so that we may escape the wrath of God the Son to come. And that's what Christmas is all about. And Mary knew that there is only one person who can save. She knew this. Isaiah 43.11 says, God speaking, I, even I am the Lord and there is no Savior beside me. God speaking through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 13 verse 4 says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. And the angel tells Mary, tells Joseph, that this child is going to be the Savior He's going to save his people from their sins, which narrows down the category of who he could be to none other than God Almighty. Fifth, we learn about Jesus this. Look at verses 22 and 23. That Jesus is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. Again, showing the inspiration of scripture because Isaiah said it. But the Lord was speaking through him, spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with the child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, if you know the story there of what happened, uh, King Ahaz is having some troubles with some enemies. God tells Isaiah, Isaiah, You and your son, Sher Jashub, go talk to Ahaz and kind of give him the genie thing. Ask for anything you want and tell him I'll do it. And so Isaiah shows up to King Ahaz and says, you know what? These enemies of yours are going to be done away with shortly. In order for you to have confidence that this is going to come about, the Lord is commanding you to ask for a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens, anything you want to prove that he's going to keep his word. And Ahaz, who was a sinner and rebellious and didn't love God, kind of said with this pious remark, well... I don't want to test the Lord. Well, God told you. God's telling you to ask for a sign. But he won't do it. So then the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And, you know, you think about it, that's a pretty radical statement. But there are some problems because in the following context 
Isaiah approaches his wife. And she gives birth to a son who they call Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, whenever you go to Starbucks, tell them to write that on the cup. That's what I do. Um, when they say, and what name do we put on that? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then they kind of pause and they say, or Jack is short for that. Anyways, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It means like swift is the booty and speed is the prey. And it just talks about uh, the demise of these enemies that were plaguing the king. And he was born. And yes, right after that, they were done away with. And people said, see, it was fulfilled. Everything's done. And so Matthew must have blown it. Well, there's some problems with that. First of all, Matt, uh, Isaiah approaching his wife and having a baby is not a sign as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Also, when Matthew quotes the text in Matthew chapter 1, he's quoting not from the Hebrew, but from the Greek version of the Old Testament popular in that day, the LXX or the Septuagint. Now, the Hebrew uses a word for virgin that could either be virgin or maiden. Some people say, yeah, that qualifies for a young wife, Isaiah's wife, whatever. The problem is is Matthew quotes from the Septuagint, and it uses a word that only means virgin. So we know from that. But most of all, we know because Matthew says so, and Matthew's inspired, that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. But he was not only the fulfillment of that prophecy, he was fulfillment of a whole string of prophecies, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when it says that the woman's seed, you know, her male child would crush the serpent's head, and then after that, that, that Jesus would be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10, and then after that, in Second Samuel and First Chronicles, the prophecies in the Davidic covenant, that he would be a son of David, that he would rule over the, and reign over the house of David for Eve, forever and his kingdom would have no end and not only that in isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 you know unto us a child is born a son is given um you know the government will rest of his shoulders his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace um that was fulfilled also in chapter 11 that he would be of the root of jesse and micah 5 2 he'd be born in bethlehem all these prophecies were all fulfilled, and the possibility of one person filling all of those at one time is pretty much impossible. And yet Jesus did it all, and you know what? He had to do it all. If Satan could have stopped one of those prophecies from being fulfilled, the Bible would not be true, God would be a liar, he would cease to be God, and the, uh, the universe would unravel. But God's promises are always faithful. Every prophecy has always come true, just as God has said. And it did just as God had said. And every detail, every promise, every prophecy of Christ's birth in the Old Testament all came true exactly like it says, which qualified Jesus to be the Messiah. Sixth and finally, Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary. Look at verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Here, Matthew summarized for us what happened after the angel appeared to Joseph. And he just does it in just one sentence. 
But what's interesting here is there appears to be a discrepancy between our text in Luke chapter 2, verse 5, where Luke says that when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, they were engaged, not married, but we've already solved that mystery because Luke is writing to Gentiles, so he's kind of giving the Gentile perspective. So we know that, yes, they were engaged or betrothed, but when it says he did, he was supposed to take her as a wife, that he's, he brought her into his home. But the text says he kept her a virgin. They didn't physically consummate the marriage. Now, what you need to understand here is some things about marriage. You need to understand marriage because this is important to understanding the significance of this point. There is a text in the Bible that in, in just one sentence gives God's blueprint for marriage. You think of where it is? It's quoted about three or four times in the New Testament. It's Genesis 2.24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife or be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Almost every text that has to do with marriage has that verse in it. Now, there are four things included in that one verse that must happen in order to have a full-blown marriage. The first is there must be a man and a woman. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman. Contrary to what the, you know, is happening in America and in the world. One man and one woman. That's what God says marriage is. Secondly, there must be a leaving of father and mother. A man shall leave, it says. Now, this isn't a geographical thing. It isn't say, you know, as soon as you get married, move to another state. Um... Although sometimes you feel like you want to do that when you first get married. So it's not necessarily geographical. So then what does it mean? It's talking about making a public statement that I am leaving this family unit as a priority. And now I'm going to establish a new family unit. There must be a public declaration, a public leaving. Why? Because if it's done in secret, then it's just fornication and immorality. So there must be a public declaration. Why? Because by making a public declaration, the man is saying, I am taking this woman to be my wife, and I am committing to loving her, taking care of her, and all of her children until death do us part. And that ensures the safety of the woman. Third, there must be an emotional bond, it says, and be joined to his wife. And this isn't the physical part, because that happens next. It's talking about both man and woman need to consent to be married. That is, they must be both willing to commit to this marriage relationship. Now, why is that important? Because if a guy goes out there and just captures a woman (laughs) and sleeps with her, that is called kidnapping and rape. Because the woman is not consenting. She is not emotionally agreeing to commit to this bond of marriage. So there must be not only a man and a woman, not only a public leaving, but there must be an emotional bond and commitment. And then finally, fourth, the two shall become one flesh that it should be physically consummated in sexual intimacy. That's all those four things must happen. And then you've got the full blown marriage. Well, our text says in verse 25 that he kept her a virgin Until she gave birth. Now, why is this important? For this reason. Because there are some who say that Mary was perpetually a virgin. Roman Catholic Church teaches this, for instance, that she 
They never consummated the marriage. Well, if that was the case, then they were never what? Married, which means Jesus was never Joseph's, which never meant he didn't have legal rights to what? The throne of David. That is a huge deal. They had to be married. Thankfully, the Bible tells us that Joseph and Mary did meet all the biblical criteria because it says until she gave birth. Not only that, but in Matthew 13, 55, Mark 3, 31, Mark 6, 3, Luke 8, 19 through 21, John 7, 3 through 5, Acts 1, 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, and Galatians 1, 19 all say that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So we know that Joseph and Mary had other children beside Jesus, after Jesus. And so Jesus then does qualify to be the firstborn son of Mary, the adopted firstborn son of Joseph, getting the legal life, the rights, the bloodline, and everything he needs to be the savior and Messiah of sinners. And so how does all this apply? Well, it's interesting to know that December 25th might be the right day. Okay, that was just for free. (laughs) And it's interesting to think about Mary and what it must have been like for Mary and, you know, the trials she went through and, you know, how hard that was. And just to kind of think about that, you know, it's sentimental. And to think about Joseph and all he went through. Very interesting. Uh, The Bible doesn't really give us much detail. But the big deal, the one thing necessary, is that you understand that Jesus was the first Christmas gift. That is the big deal. I think we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. That is a statement of the first Christmas gift. That God gave Jesus. Romans 8.32, I think, says it this way. He did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. Christ was God's gift to us. When he was born, that was the first Christmas gift. That God had concocted a plan where he didn't have to set aside his holiness. He didn't have to set aside his justice. He could punish every sin to the fullest degree. And he would either punish them on the head of, of those who would not repent or on the head of his only beloved son who was willing to have it happen. So that those through faith in him could receive his perfect righteousness and he would see, receive their sin. He would, as Isaiah says, would be crushed for our iniquity. And, that, and that's what Christmas is about. I mean, that's the big deal. It's, it's not the Grinch. It's not Santa. It's not reindeer. It's not lights and the tree and the turkey and the stuffing. It's God saying, I love sinners. And so I am now going to send my son into this virgin's womb so he can be born fully man and fully God. So he can live a perfect life. So he can call some disciples and train them. So he can offer the kingdom and be rejected, crucified, 
die and bury again, and then resurrected. He would then ascend into heaven, which is where he is now. He's not the baby on the throne anymore. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to come back in glory. And it could be any day. You may not ever get those presents open, sorry to say. That'd be good if you know Jesus. And so if you do know Jesus, Tim, sorry you said it all. We need to thank God and praise God and worship God and be glad that God loved us so much. He would give his only begotten son for such wretches as ourselves. And if you don't know Jesus, then this morning is the best day to know him. You could receive God's Christmas gift to you. He just holds it out and says, and as many as receive this gift to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you're willing to repent of your sins, turn from your sins and trust wholly in God's precious gift to you, God will save you and it will be the gift that keeps on giving forever and ever. And that's what's so great about Christmas is it, it is the celebration of that first Christmas gift. So I would pray uh, this Christmas, if you don't know Jesus, that you would get right with him because he may come back and you don't want to be on the wrong side of the fence when he comes back. Because now he's extending mercy, but when he comes back, he's extending justice. And when you open up presents under the tree this year, when you unwrap that present, you keep thinking to yourself that this is nothing more than a symbol of the great gift given to us in the person of Jesus. And then all those gifts, whatever they are, will pale in comparison to the gift of God's son to you, that you might have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all the great things we were able to see in this text. I was kind of ashamed to have to go so fast, and yet it's kind of good to do an overview. I just pray, Father, for all of us who know Christ here, I pray that we would leave here rejoicing that, yes, we have houses and lights and trees and presents and feasts and all kinds of things to celebrate your son's birth but father i just pray that we would not miss jesus in it all that father we would have our our minds fixed upon you and your son and be thankful for all that you have given us and father the gift of your son that first christmas gift and father if there's somebody here whose heart right now is being humbled and they realize they don't know you i pray they would cry out to you That, Father, this Christmas Eve would be the time in the year 2006 when they received the gift of your only begotten Son. That they would turn from their wicked way and their unrighteous thoughts and they would receive Jesus. And, Father, be saved forevermore and be able to rejoice with you, with all the saints, with all the angels in heaven forever and ever because you loved us enough to send your only begotten son. Father, we pray these things knowing that you are sovereign and you will bring them to pass in your own good time, in your own good way, because of your own good will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.